I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. This is Dumpty Dum, sponsored by managers. <laughs> Hello and welcome. It's one of those very special dumpty dums where um, we dispense with Jacqueline uh, and talk of Sanguine in France and uh, and even the Cordoneros. And uh, basically, we get to the hub of the matter. We get to, we speak to somebody who's one of the what I call one of the unseen gods of Ambridge, and uh, we have with us one of those unseen gods. Now, this is Graham Hervey, who was the agricultural story editor for. The Archers for some 34 years. Uh, he was also the author of books including The Killing of the Countryside and Carbon Fields. And I believe, sir, you have a new book out. What is this new book, Graham? Well, it's not actually out yet. It's a crowdfunded book and we're about halfway to our target. And it's called Good Heavens. The Archers. And Good Heavens. Now, <laughs> a crowdfunded book. This sounds very 2022. Uh, what exactly is a crowdfunded book? Well, so it's... A publishing company called Unbound, and uh, you you send them the book, uh, and they do a nice page, design a nice cover. Then you invite everyone to um, to pledge uh, to reach to cover the launch costs, and when and if you make that target launch total, out comes the book. So wow, well. So would I be right in speculating that part of your marketing campaign? was to get onto a podcast about the Archers where fans of the Archers who might want to buy that book for Christmas could well be present. Yeah, that was part of my campaign, but I'm afraid the book won't be out before Christmas. But uh, <laughs> I'd certainly not support the book. <laughs> well, I was on about Christmas 2023. Oh, that's the one. That's the key one. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> let, let's, so, so there is a book and tell us about the book. What exactly does the book entail? Well, uh, I worked on the Archers. I started on the Archers at about, not, well, not about, it was 1984. And I started as a script writer. 
And really for the next, you know, a major part of my adult life was spent part of the time in this village. And these characters I was writing stories for and writing dialogue for, I got to know really well. And I got to know them as well as friends in my life, I suppose, in many cases. So uh, I wanted to write about that. When I left the arts, I wanted to write about that. But I wanted to combine my story and what I, what you know, what had happened to me in the countryside particularly, because I'm sort of passionately interested in farming and got my own views on it. And I also wanted to link it with the characters I knew on the arches. So, for example, Joe and Eddie Grundy, I'd maybe write about uh, an idea I'd had for the real countryside and, and see how they deal with it. So in a way, through sort of 30-odd years of my life, reality, my own reality and Ambridge reality were sort of intertwined. So I tried it out. I put it all in the book um, and I sent it to these publishers. And we also sent it to Stephen Fry, who liked it a lot. And he he actually was kind enough to say that the prism of this village of Ambridge was a great prism for looking at the wider society and, and, and life in Britain generally, which is what I'd hoped to do. You know, I, I've always thought that about, about the archers, that if you want to understand um, the British class system, you know, l- listen to the archers, listen to the archers. You're going you're gonna to get a lot of it there. But Graham, can I let you into a little bit of a secret? You might terminate this call straight away but here's a secret on this podcast i've been known to say the following i don't know why there's all this farming chat in the arches it gets in the way of the drama now please tell me right that my views are not only wrong but heretical and tell us uh, how exactly you uh for 34 years uh melded stories about the countryside about farming about agriculture into the docudrama? Uh, well, I guess it's a long story. I, it, it's, it's partly why I don't have any kind of farming background. I grew up in a council house in Reading. But oh, wow. for whatever reason, I decided I wanted to learn about farming. So um, I worked on some farms, went to university and studied agriculture. And when I eventually wound up as a, a freelance farming journalist, I was sort of writing for Farmers Weekly and Farming News, those kind of papers. Um, and as a student, I'd um, started listening to the archers. And, you know, my um, sort of co-agricultural students, we all thought the archers was kind of our program. We kind of felt a sort of ownership of it. And all the other students and doing electronics and stuff like that, they thought we were really weird. We listened to this show quarter to seven every evening. But we loved it. And, uh, you know, that when I was out in the real world of farming, I continued listening to the archers. Uh, and I remember thinking one day, well, you know, that's probably the most useful thing I ever learned at university was the archers. And uh, I'd have a go at writing for it. And the archers was getting a lot of criticism. I mean, uh, a lot of people, I guess, share your view about agriculture that it gets in the way of real drama. But a whole lot of people there were at that time anyway, and we're talking about the sort of mid-80s, they thought there wasn't enough farming in it. And it sort of... this drama which had been set out to explain the English countryside and English village life in the 1950s, that had now been forgotten and it was all sort of soap stories and I knew they were getting flack for this in the in the media so I thought well if I 
make up some scenes and some stories with a lot of farming in it that will get me a job on the show. Um, well, it wasn't quite that simple, but eventually I did get a job on the show. And although um, I remember the first lot of trial episodes I wrote for the editor, he said, he's a pretty dire, Graham. But he said, I'll keep you on because nobody else is doing much agriculture. <laughs> so I thought, I got a trial week's episode. And I thought, well, if I fill it with a lot of farming, they may not notice that, you know, some of the human drama isn't so great. But it's interesting that, I don't know, it's luck or judgment. I did my second lot of trial episodes. And, um, and when I, I sent them in, the editor, who was a guy called William Smethers back in the 80s, and he said to me, well, if anything, Graham, these are worse than your first lot. But he said out of the 25 or 30 scenes, there was one scene I really liked. Uh, and it was introducing a new character, just to show my age, it's a new character called Elizabeth Archer. And she was a 17-year-old at that time. And I, and the first time she was appearing as a teenager, I had to have a sort of flirtatious scene with her and Nigel Pargeter in the orchard at Brookfield. And um, it was that scene he liked so much that he kept me the job, really. So for the next 10 years, I managed to hang on to it and put a lot of farming in my, um, my scenes. And that seemed to uh, keep me there. Yeah, no, it's, uh, that for me is fascinating because what I presumed, and very obviously I was wrong and you've corrected me, was that uh, as the agricultural editor, what you would uh, be doing would be to say, we need to talk about this issue, silage or polytunnels or whatever, right? Um, some level of blight, which is happening with some kind of crop. And then uh, you would say, this is what we need to talk about. And then you might map out how this issue could be dealt with by whatever farm. And then the other writers would write the dialogue. I had no idea because, you know, I did know of you, Graham. It's kind of my job to know, know of you. But I had no idea that you were actually fundamentally writing dialogue and scripts. That, that I did not know. Well, uh, I did that for 10 years because they had an agricultural editor when I joined as a scriptwriter, and his name was Anthony Parkin. I knew him quite well through my sort of farming journalist days. So for the first 10 years on the show, I was just a scriptwriter. But I did put a lot of farming in my scripts. But then um, when Tony Parkin retired, I asked the boss if I could have his job. And uh, so I continued scriptwriting, but... I was mostly writing storylines, and it wasn't quite as you imagined. Um, it's true I would read my Farmers Weekly and look for the big farming issues that were going on, but because I'd been a writer and I knew these characters so well, I could actually turn it into a, a storyline, really, that would unfold as a drama over the weeks. So I think that's um, how I seem to make it work, uh, simply because I knew what the writers wanted, and most of them didn't know that much about farming. And I, but I knew what they'd want. I, so I could bring the emotion into, into my storyline notes and the dramas and the conflicts, the human conflict I can actually put into these farming issues, if you like. So it was a mixture of script writing and, um, and, and the kind of things you, you know, the technical knowledge about farming and what was going on at that time of year. So, um, are you up to the, I, I take it that, uh, you know, once, uh, 
uh, an agricultural editor on the arch is always an, uh, an agricultural editor on the on the arch. So you're all up to cor- all up with the current uh, script line uh, plot lines. So you all know, so you know about the the pants in the soil, the underpants in the soil. I do. Yes, it's, it's got to be cotton pants. <laughs> so <laughs> no hint of polyester in them at all. Then <laughs> polyester won't work because uh, microbes don't recognise plastics. So, so here's the thing, right? When you see that storyline now, do you say, "God damn it, that's a great one"? I, I could have shoehorned that in, right? Uh, or do you say, "Ah, you know, know what you're doing there, uh, etc." How how do you feel about the agricultural direction of storyline since you've gone permission to speak freely? Uh, well, um, I mean, I like that story. I think that's a great story. But it, 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 well, it's a great kind of, it's a few great scenes at the moment. I don't know what kind of story it's going to turn into. Mm. I think generally the farming's been very good since I left, but um, I'm very hesitant to say anything else, but um, I don't know. It, yeah. I just gave you permission to speak freely, Greg. No one listens to the podcast. <laughs> no, you could have said, really you could have said, that. you know. I realise <laughs> that. And I, I'm also aware that they've had a couple of, you know, I think they've had two or three cultural editors since I left. So, and uh, I mean, the present one, um, Sybil Roscoe, and she hasn't been in post very long, so I'm very reluctant to talk about current stories, so I think it's fair on her. Oh, listen, absolutely. Listen, I'm just pulling your leg and teasing yeah, you. I, what, yeah. what, I, what I thought was lovely, and you have mentioned the Grundys, um, was that the, how they've managed to uh, bring that st- take that story and bring it all the way back to the rivalry between Joe and Bert. I just thought it was, it was genius, that, you know. Yes, the, that was great. Yeah, these two old duffers that for years yes. were, were frenemies and whatever, and even in, in, in death. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know? that was, that was, a, that yeah. was fantastic. I agree. Yeah, really yeah absolutely. Done. And it is, I mean, you realise when you work on the show, you know, how fortunate you are to work on something that's gone on so long because it mm. has that backstory, it has that sort of family history to it. So you can do stories like that. It's just wonderful, I think. So, you know, over 34 years, you very obviously had a couple of, you know, three or four corking storylines, you know. When, when, you know, you're tucking yourself in bed at night and you think back at Time of the Archers, you know, what are the three stories you go, you know what, I knocked the ball out of the park there. That That's, you know, I'm proud of those. <laughs> Well, I guess the first one I did as agricultural editor was about GM crops, and and it was quite controversial. This is twenty odd years ago, I should think, but it was about. Uh, is that when Kirsty's going to come into it? Uh, no, I think it's before Kirsty. It was Tom Archer, oh, okay. an environmental activist. Mm. He went out and trashed his uncle Brian's experimental GM crop. And he got charged with criminal damage. And uh, I remember the editor at the time said to me, well, look, we do this story, Graham, but it's such a controversial subject that you've got to be spot on with your facts on this. And we've got to be even-handed because... Um, and it's I put a huge amount of work, actually, but um, it, it paid off in the end. It, we were very fortunate that... Um, Two women had been charged with criminal damage of a GM crop, and they were due to come to Crown Court in Somerset, no, in Plymouth, in Devon. Um, and uh, this is just before we ran the story, just before I wrote the story. And then kind of a week before the trial opened, um, the prosecution withdrew their case. And, the, you know, the women were 
well, the case was dropped. The speculation in the press was that the government had intervened because they didn't want the pros and cons of GM uh, discussed in court. I don't know if that's the case. But anyway, I, I found out the prosecutor, the Crown Prosecution guy down in Plymouth, and said, look, now you're not doing this case. Can you talk to me about an Archer story? And he was very happy to talk about that case. And I also, a very expensive London law firm was doing these two women's defence, and I phoned them up. And the guy there said, well, look, my wife's a great Archers fan, so if you come and see me on a Sunday, I'll talk to you for free about our defence case. So we did. I did all that, and then I wrote the episodes for the week, and we ran the trial right through the week, which was Monday to Friday in those days. Um, and uh, you know, I had to, I had to assure the boss and prove to her that we almost to the second, the pro GM case was matched by the anti GM case, and then at the end of the week, when uh, Tom could either be found guilty, I mean, we then had to pass it higher up in the BBC. Uh, as to whether he should be. And they eventually came down and said, well, if, yeah, he can be not guilty. And, and it was. Um, and uh, what was particular, and so it was a great story for us, and um, and it was mentioned in the House of Commons, some MP said he'd learned more about GM from the Archer story. So, uh, and then about, I don't know, three months later, it happened that a, a real live case uh, came up uh, the head of Greenpeace, who was a guy called Peter Melcher, also was charged with criminal damage for trashing a GM crop. And he was using the same defence. In fact, the defence firm that had advised me were engaged. They, the guy phoned me up and said, I can't help you anymore. I didn't need him to, to be honest. But he said, "I, you know, we're doing this real case for Greenpeace. And that was heard in court, the same defence case, same prosecution, and Peter Melchick was found not guilty too. So we were about, you know, and the archers, we were ahead of real life. <laughs> that six months ago, that was, yeah, that was a good story. It's kind of quite a scary story because, you know, I knew if I'd got anything wrong, it would have been. Um, so just we'll come to another one, right? Okay. Be, be honest, right? Where did you want. Um, Tom to end up? Did you want him to be uh, not guilty, or did you want, you know, for the sake of drama, let's throw him behind bars like Susan Carter a few years beforehand? I I want him to be not guilty because I was um, I you know, was personally fairly against Jim in agriculture, um, so that's why I asked to get the story done, and 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 the boss Vanessa was um, right rightly. Uh, very careful about how it was done. Mm. So it was done in a very balanced way. But I did I think, to get off. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you talked about this issue and how controversial it was back then. I think it's less so now. You know, yeah. we, we leave we live in much more environmentally conscious times than let's say twenty years ago. And, and just on on that, I know when the bridge farm lot. Uh, in in the eighties, were all, they, they were always the pioneers for new tech, new farming techniques, which were much more organic, weren't they? The bridge yes. farm lot, yeah. um, and they were seen as outliers in in that regard, you know. And it's really interesting how now none of it's within question uh, at all. But 
How often did you have to go up the food chain, so to speak, and have your have you know the the greater and the better in the BBC basically say yes, we can do this, and, and no, we can't? Because I think that's really interesting in terms of because a public service broadcaster, they're always trying to be careful. If you're writing, let's say for for ITV, I'm presuming you wouldn't have had that level of control. So how often did you have to have things, um, you know, given the, the green light? It's very rare. I mean, it happened on other stories, but my farming stories, I think that's that's the only time I can remember an outcome having to be referred higher up for, mm-hmm. um, you know, the final turn, twist of the story. I just I found it interesting there that you said um, uh, Bridge Farm was kind of like the centre of development of the new organic techniques. You see, to me, my age and vintage Organic is the real farmer because, you know, you went back, uh, you know, to the time, you know, my childhood, everything was organic then. And so we, we're we sort of 50 years into this great experiment. I mean, all food was organic from the start of farming about 10,000 years ago until 50 years ago. And now a lot of people, me included, think it was a wrong direction to go in. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And so it's sort of, it's, kind of, it's really interesting. I've written about this um the archers came out of this world of small mixed farms. You know, at the end of World War II, um, two-thirds of farms in Britain were under 100 acres. You know, just it was a land of small farms. And the archers was about small farmers. They And what's happened to Britain and also what's happened in Ambridge is that farming from being mostly about people like the Grundys, who would have been very ordinary, basic farmers in lots of Britain at that time, have now almost been marginalised. And farming farmers are now very middle class and, you know, got big acreages and that. And in a way, uh, 
the arts has promoted this, or those, a program that was supposed to be about, that started featuring small farmers, it was actually undermining that whole structure because it was actually reflecting the government messages about farms had to get bigger and mechanised and use more chemicals and basically get people off the land. That was uh, that's what happened. And now, um, in many ways, it's a big mistake. Mm. No, that, that's, that's fascinating. And, and me being... Uh, um somebody who's not grown up in, in the countryside. And I must admit, my, my only link to the countryside is the archers. Yeah. yeah. I, I remember just last year, I went to the countryside, visited a friend, and I was up, up close and personal with a cow. I realised that what bloody big size those beasts are. You know, that, you know, <laughs> I knew it was a cow. I didn't realise the size of this thing. Yeah. Right, whatever. So, like, I literally, my only consequential link to the countryside is the archers. So I wasn't aware of the business of agriculture and how that has changed. And I suppose if I'm forced now to think about it, somebody like Brian and, uh, you know, and BL and all their various holdings, you know, they they seem like almost like the evil corporate end uh, of farming, you know, and that's, and I, I'm trying to work out, is that, my perception because of my political leanings or am I taking it in through osmosis through the, through the storylines? Brian Aldridge, wonderful character. Um, but it's but when he talks about farming, he doesn't talk about it with the same passion that let's say David or Tony or Pat. You know, it is very different. It's a business, whereas with them it's a vocation. And they they're very much what our stewards, aren't they, of the land? Yeah, I agree with that. And um, uh, I, I suspect my politics are similar to yours, actually, Roy, though, because I always thought of um, Brian as the, uh, the big business farmer and did not have that emotional attachment to the land that the, the archers had, or I must say the Grundis had, because I, I, my favourite characters the whole time I was there was the Grundy family and for much of the time I was there it was Joe and Eddie and Clary that threesome at Grange Farm and to me they almost represented the real archers they certainly represented the British countryside when the archers started they were small uh, tenant farmers they were kind of um, you know they're kind of direct inheritors of peasant farming really which Britain was and well the world was if you go back a couple of hundred years and and slowly big business farming sort of take made it corporate and and the Aldridge's represented that and the estate of course and the archers were somewhere in the middle because you know when it started Dan Archer had a small farm but Phil Archer was the one who kind of mirrored what was happening in the wider countryside because he, he got bigger and he got very middle class. But the whole time I was there, we always, it was almost um, a sort of a rule that we had to keep uh, Brookfield and uh, David and Ruth and the family, they had to be sort of middle of the road. They had, you know, had to care for their animals, had to care for the land and we could, maybe do more ruthless things with the Aldridge's. But alongside that, um, my personal fight was to stop the Grundys becoming totally comic characters because I think they represented sort of working tenant farmers who didn't have an investment 
inland because they were you know, just renting and so on. And 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 they were introduced as comic characters, and I fought against making them totally that. I've got great hopes for George Grundy because um, I know he's having trouble with his literacy at the moment at college, but I, I think he'll be great. I, I think that's fascinating because you know it's pulling us back to something which we said really at the start of our conversation is that if you want to understand the british class system go listen to the archers yeah right um and so so to pull up the grundies is just really um, a massive casing point and the grundies have been perennial bad luck characters and if you follow uh, the archers on Twitter, and I, I don't, I don't really anymore. But Twitter, if we're just being honest about it, skews politically left of centre, and all of the archers fans on there are, have always been for years have been bemoaning the fact that the, the Grundys are uh, a working class bad luck trope. So it's really interesting the fact that you know you have uh, been w- when you had your time uh, on the show that you were very much aware of that and trying to break out of that stereotype. And I rem- and, and and one of the denouements in in their whole kind of plot line was when they had to move to was it Meadow Rise? They had to move to, to the council. So they yes. yeah, and they lost the um yeah. they lost the farm completely but it was always that you know they were cutting corners they couldn't properly invest in the farm and they did things very much kind of fl- fly by night and, and then they lost it um so so that's uh, utterly fascinating and just for what it's worth i think our politics do align as well graham but um, <laughs> um so that's give us another storyline which um you know you, you definitely hang your hat on um just to finish that Grundy thing, I mean, it's, I remember there's a time when Ed Grundy, I, I agree with all you say about, you know, the Grundys have sort of made this comic trope. But there was a time when Ed Grundy, I mean, he had his problems as a young lad and he'd come through them really. And he'd been helped by Oliver, he'd started his own dairy and that sort of thing. There was a time when okay, they, they, he lost those cows. Um, but he managed to, and this is one of my stories, he managed to buy himself a tractor. And I so, I know so many sort of country, mostly boys, but some girls now, who um, once they've got a tractor, they can set themselves up as independent contractors. And I had Ed Grundy do this. And there was a moment I went to the boss and said, look, you know, I know Ed Grundy's in the real world who've done this. They've got their first tractor and they've become independent um, you know, they've got their own independent businesses, their own businesses for the first time and do very well. And she said to me, yeah, but um, Ed's a Grundy. We can't have him doing very well. And so I actually realised that, you know, on that show, the Grundy family are there to serve that stereotype. And I was uh, unhappy about that. Um, moving on, <laughs> I chose one of my final stories. I remember when I took over, well, before I was a cultural editor, I remember the then cultural editor, Anthony Parkin, at one of the script meetings said, we were talking about the families and how they, the farming families and how they were in, in terms of their business security. And he said, you know, of all the farming characters, Brian Aldridge, the Aldridges are, you know, 
bulletproof really they you know they've got so much in their land is worth so much that you know they've got that it would take a huge you know the whole economy farming economy would have to collapse for the the aldriches to you know suffer so i was kind of remembered that for 20 years and thought well one day I said, I'm going to find a way to bring down the oldies. <laughs> <laughs> so I had this idea. Well, it's an idea I had in connection with another drama that I was involved in at the time. And I remembered back in the 1970s, um, around the time we went into the EU and all the environmental restrictions on dumping dangerous industrial chemicals tightened up. There were lots of stories in the farming press I used to write for about how farmers would take backhanders and allow some local industrials to dump toxic metals on their land. So I remember, and there was a big story in the Sunday Times in the 70s on, on this. It was, you know, and I thought, well, what if Brian Aldridge, who none of us knew, not even Jennifer, that he'd taken, you know, when he was maybe struggling a bit, when he'd first taken this farm, maybe he was a bit overstretched for cash, taking some money to to bury this cache of drums of toxic chemical and uh, a few years ago you'll remember whether we had that flood and i thought well what if that flood had actually displaced the soil and some of these drums have started leaking and what if they started leaking into the river am and all the fish died and uh, it was traced back to brian aldridge so um I found a way actually to bring this wonderful farmhouse and poor Jennifer lost her wonderful kitchen. She did, she lost her kitchen. You you sir are a revolutionary. You know, you it's <laughs> like how to bring down the rich and, and, and the powerful. Oh, well, well done. <laughs> well, well done. <laughs> so yeah, um, that's yeah. That's so, I guess uh, uh, that worked pretty well, um, uh, and it certainly changed the dynamics of, uh, of the farming there. And I guess it was the, the end of Brian's generation, really, wasn't it? Uh, you know, mm. New generation farming that land. So it's good. Oh, I, <laughs> Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, just uh, uh, on that, I've met Charles Collingwood uh, just the once. In 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 a hotel, I, I, I walked into uh, a lift, and um, I just for a moment I lost myself. I should have pressed ground floor, and he was behind me. He said, "Ground floor, please," like this, and I went, "Bloody hell, you're Brian Aldridge!" And he went, "Yes, I am." <laughs> I was like, <laughs> just to hear that voice. You know, yeah, going, you, but anyway, so you didn't know his face, so it was just the voice. Absolutely yeah. did not. Absolutely Fantastic. did not. It was, you know, and even if I had half recognised the voice, it was the last thing I was expecting when I just walked into a lift. You know, oh. and, I, and then I turn around, and I just for a moment, um, I've forgotten to press the button. He said, "Ground floor, please." Huh? Bloody hell. <laughs> <laughs> but he seemed to be doing all right. It's quite a swish hotel. So I don't know if you you could have brought him down a little bit lower, Graham. <laughs> I, yes, he's still <laughs> a fair amount of money. Yeah. <laughs> um, so why did you decide after thirty four years that uh, your your time was up in Ambridge? Um, uh, a mixture of reasons. Um, it was. It was a great wrench to leave because it had been so much of my life. And although it was always 
I mean, throughout that time, I was always on a, uh, a freelance contract, an annual freelance contract. It was extraordinary, really. So about this time of year, I'd always wonder if I'd get one for next year. But I kind of adjusted to that. But I was doing, you know, still doing journalism and, and, and I started writing some books on agriculture. I think if, if one of my books had done better, I probably would have left a bit earlier because um, uh, it just, you know, even working as a part-time on the arches, it actually engages a huge amount of your conscious uh, waking time, really, because you're almost whatever you do, you're thinking about the next lot of storylines. I, I mean, it was a bit of a treadmill, to be absolutely honest. I had, you know, so every month I had to turn in maybe seven or eight work through storylines, you know, from inventing them to researching them to delivering them these storylines that are worked through over the over a series of weeks and so on. So it was always there. Um, and you know, o- o- yeah. over your time there, did that churn get worse that you felt more on a treadmill? Um, and I, in a strange way, it got easier because I became more confident. It, you have a sense of a treadmill when you have this looming deadline and um, you're, not, you're not sure whether you're going to deliver anything but I've been, you know, after 20 years of doing that, I, I got confident that I would think of stories. I could look through Farmers Weekly and, and on a Friday and pick out three or four stories. Um, so maybe the, the other thing, I always wanted to uh, write more books. And if any of my books had sold better, none of them sold particularly well. And, you know, people would come to a fantastic book you read. That's going to change everything. And sort of 10 people would buy it. And so... Um, I think I I kind of like to have been engaged in changing farming more, really. So I I sometimes think maybe I stayed at the in Ambridge a bit too long. But it, you know, it became like a family, and it's just hard to say goodbye to it. And that sounds very odd, I know, but um, you did you did feel you knew these characters, and uh, and when you left, it's like you're not going to see them again. You, I mean, you do because I still listen to the Archers, obviously. Is that an answer? I don't think, <laughs> uh, no, no, I'll, I'll accept that as an answer. Um, how do you think, in terms of the agricultural storylines, um, Brexit was portrayed in in Ambridge? I must admit, I very obviously, as I said before. I'm not a creature of the countryside, but I, the one thing that's really grated with me was I, I think there should have been more conversation because one of the key things that the EU did was, was subsidies towards farmers. Uh, and, and then I was always surprised by Adam, somebody who not only was he um, a farmer, but also very well-travelled, that he was a, a Brexiteer. But that could well just be my Prejudice has been a remainer. So um, that must have been an issue which um, you had to sit down and really think about with other scriptwriters, you know, Brexit and how it would and how the various different characters would respond to that result. Thing is, the BBC, you had to make sure that the whole Brexit issue was, you know, balanced in the same same way as all the other stories. I didn't have a great issue with um with Adam being pro-Brexit, simply because uh, 
his backstory was, you know, before he, he came and came back to Ambridge, he'd, he'd worked in development in different parts of the world. And I know uh, people I knew in development were very against, uh, you know, the, the subsidies, particularly the ones that came under the, the, the common agricultural policy, because, I mean, basically all they did was create surpluses that get dumped on world markets, basically sold off cheap onto world markets, and they depressed prices for farmers in, in poorer countries. So I think I could... Just on that point... Adam, taking that view... On that point, Graham, because it's something which... I've become aware of in other industries. Um, there's a, just a quick, quick detour. M- one of the most fascinating podcasts, because this is a podcast I ever listened to, was an NPR one, um, Planet Money, which gave you the history of um, recycled clothes, of secondhand clothes. And actually, a lot of the clothes which we take to the secondhand shop um, don't stay in Britain. They end up in developing economies and so if you always look at um, a bit of film about let's say Kenya or uh, somewhere in Burkina Faso invariably the kids are always wearing premiership football shirts they always are right and it does exactly what you've just said it means that those indigenous industries uh, around clothing can don't have a hope of really starting because our second-hand clothes are getting dumped into third-world markets and we feel like we're doing a good thing, but it really uh, is at a detriment to Indigenous industries. Do you think, though, that Adam's position when it comes to Brexit was completely and utterly explained in that regard? Because what you've just said to me makes sense. But I don't remember, and maybe I missed it, but I remember him arguing for that at the time. I I would agree. I, you know, I, I can't remember the details. I know we had lots of discussion, obviously, about it. But I I don't remember. I kind of agree with you that we, there wasn't enough dramatic um, conflict around that issue that we were seeing in the wider society. It was much um, – it's fair to say um, extraordinarily, I'm surprised, most a majority of farmers seem to want Brexit. Um, I, I was a Remainer and still am, but um, we balanced it on the archers. I can't remember who the Remainers were on the archers. But it's, if I would, if I was saying a good thing about Brexit, it would have been that we freed up our agriculture. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know that real Brexit bonus, would, which would have been getting rid of the common agricultural policy, there's no sign that we've taken it up yet. I just would like to kind of end on a, a farming note, if I may, Ruth. Ruth it's um, uh, I, I've yeah, I've always thought this kind of Aldrich style of farming was a disaster. It's a disaster for the planet, and the science is kind of really becoming very clear on this now. You know, we're just what we've done really in the period of the archers is take this very sustainable small farms who created landscapes in which was a huge amount of biomass, all the trees and woodlands and the big hedges and all that, which retained a lot of carbon. We've now gone over to a chemical system totally dependent on nitrate fertilizers, which are made from fossil fuel, of course. And the, that system required us to take out all the hedges, create these great prairies, these great machines, 
So all that carbon that was in the soil and all these hedges now gone into the atmosphere. And the most effective thing we could do to, in, in the, to fight climate change is actually to change land use and to put that carbon back into the ground and, and you know, create more hedges and more wetlands and all that. If we did that, we'd get better food. But we need the kind of landscape that was there when the archer started. So it's extraordinary. We're at a point now, the archers, it's as if the archers, when it started, actually promoted the government's view that we need big mechanized chemical farms. And now it's clear if we're going to save our planet, we need small farms self-sufficient, sustainable, not using nitrate fertilizers and put carbon back in the ground. And that's the kind of farming we need everywhere in the world, including UK and America. So um, I think the archers should be leading in that direction. Well, you know what? I'm going to say that in one regard, the archers is leading um, because... I wasn't aware of rewilding. I don't claim to be a big environmentalist. I, I, emotionally, I am. I'm, I'm always down with the arguments, uh, but I'm much more of a geopolitical animal. And the first time that rewilding was really put in front of me where I really had to think about it, it was, was through the archers. And, and, I, and I understand that it's giving the earth, giving the soil a rest. And, and, then, and through that rest, um, natural flora and fauna will actually then flourish. Uh, animals which have been, uh, in effect, kicked off our, our habitat because we've created this false habitat, then come back and recolonize it. You know, so so I think um, the archers, I completely agree with you, still has a place. And in terms of educating not only farmers, but actually the rest of the great British public about the importance of the countryside. So Graham, Harvey, thank you for coming on to Dumpty Dum. Please tell us uh, the name of, of the book, which isn't quite published yet, but how people can get behind it and back it. Yeah, it's called Underneath the Arches, um, and it's published by Unbound. So if you go on to unbound.com, you get a chance to um, to uh, pledge support, um, and hopefully the book will be out next year. It's called Underneath the Arches. Well, I'm going to make sure uh, that uh, the listeners of Dumpty Dum get behind it. So there you are, good listener. Uh, jump on to uh, your computer right now. Put your phone down. I know you listen to the podcast on your phone. Put that down. Jump on your laptop. Get onto the Unbound website. Find Graham's book and pledge some money so we can make sure that it uh, is in all of our Christmas stockings for 2023. Thank you so much, Roy. No worries. Listen, I, what a fascinating conversation. One of the lovely things about um, interviewing people about the archers is conversation always slightly goes off on a tangent. And I had no idea that you are the revolutionary uh, that you are, that you are, sir. You know that little did they know when they, when they took you on board uh, back in 1984 that you that you you were going to be a red under the bed. So for that, brother, I salute you. <laughs> <laughs> The subtitle of my book is Underneath the Archers. It's called My Life as a Secret Agent for Nature. Nature. <laughs> there you go. Graham, thank you for coming on to Dumpty Dum. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.